here at Hamilton Road, we say that we want to become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. I don't know, have you ever wondered or, or wished that you could be one of the first followers of Jesus Christ? One of these 12 that we read about all the times in Scripture? Imagine hearing Jesus preach, seeing all those healings and the exorcisms, the resurrections, Jesus raising people from the dead. Imagine being able to chat to him personally, to, to sit on into the, the late hours of an evening uh, and, and talk things over with him. Sometimes I imagine that if I had had that opportunity, if I had had that privilege to be one of Jesus' first disciples, then I, I would really be a faithful follower. It'd be easy if I was there with Jesus. But then I read stories about the first disciples and what happened, and, and I realize it's, it's maybe not as simple as that. This episode with the disciples in the storm, which is right at the heart of our passage this morning, it makes me wonder when I see that they had his physical presence among them and they still had no faith, I sort of think, hmm, maybe, maybe I would have been like that too. By this stage in, in Matthew's gospel, the disciples had good reasons for strong faith in Jesus. In the days leading up to this crisis, they've seen Jesus exercise his power. And we saw that uh, last week in the first part of chapter 8. The disciples had witnessed how, how Jesus wasn't afraid of leprosy. Everybody else is terrified of leprosy. Jesus isn't. He reaches out knowing that the holiness in him is far more contagious than any skin disease. We see how Jesus transforms the, the political and ethnic fault lines that run through his community. He heals the servant of a Roman centurion with the first long-distance cross-cultural healing. The disciples observed more of Jesus' extravagant compassion when he went and he healed Peter's mother-in-law and he extended the same offer to everyone in the neighborhood. If you, you want to be healed, come. So the disciples had seen all that and had seen that. It doesn't feel like it was very long ago by the time that we, we get to, to our story today. And yet, here on the lake, the wind just blows away all memory of what they've seen. One storm sweeps them off their feet, spiritually as well as physically. It, it was a big storm, all right. It must have been. Uh, some of these disciples, don't forget, are, are fishermen, Galilean fishermen. They're, they're used to being in their boats. They're used to being on the lake. They're, they're not afraid of a bit of weather. But this is a big storm. Matthew describes it, verse 24, as furious. I, I can, I'm sort of imagining what, what happened when, when that storm went up. The, 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 the fishermen, fishermen among the 12 would take charge, wouldn't they? Drop the sails batten down the hatches, man the pumps. They, they did all that. They, they were doing all of that. But it wasn't enough. Matthew tells us the waves swept over the boat. It wasn't long before the disciples have exhausted all their seafaring know-how, their bank of expertise. So when all else fails, it's time to, to wake Jesus. D did you notice that? He's asleep in a boat when there's a hurricane coming through. 
This isn't a big boat. This isn't a steno line. This is a, a few feet of timber waiting to, to crash. And he's asleep. What kind of a man is this? They wake Jesus and they shout at him. One commentator describes their cry. He says it's part prayer, part panic, part faith, part despair, part right, part wrong. Lord, save us. We're going to drown. They got so much right, didn't they? They're, they rightly address Jesus as Lord. They recognize that he has that place in their lives. They rightly call on Jesus to save them because they, they know that he's able to, that they know that he's strong enough to. But they, in the end, get it wrong. They tell Jesus that they're beyond saving and that they're going to drown. When the disciples woke Jesus with their panic cries, Matthew tells us what Jesus did. It's the kind of thing we've maybe read it a number of times. It doesn't really speak to us. Matthew tells us that he, he rebuked the wind and the waves, but not before he rebukes his disciples. You'd think he'd go to the wind and the waves first. It feels pretty pressing, but no. He, he talks to his disciples. You see, he's more interested in the faith crisis that's going on in the boat than in, in the weather crisis that's going on around the boat. You of little faith, why are you so afraid? I think we need to be careful when we interpret passages like this. How are we to understand this? Are followers of Jesus Christ not allowed to express fear? Are you not allowed to be a bit terrified when you're in a tiny fishing boat in a hurricane? Are we to be naive about danger? Are we to live with our heads stuck in the sand? Are we to be stoic and say, I, I don't care what happens to me? I don't think so. The Bible is full of examples of believers who are open about their struggles, about their doubt, about their despair in, in the face of disaster. Those of us who have been reading the Psalms will know how much God values integrity, authenticity, honesty from his people. So, how then do we understand Jesus' rebuke of his disciples? Matthew Henry, the famous 18th century Bible commentator, says, Jesus does not chide his disciples for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. That's an important distinction. In the third of Harry Potter, the Harry Potter novels, The Prisoner of Azkaban, J.K. Rowling's given me language for what's going on in this story. At a time when Harry is in grave danger, Mrs. Weasley, the mother of Harry's best friend, tells him, the safest place on earth to be is wherever Albus Dumbledore happens to be. She's speaking, of course, of the, the kindly headmaster of Hogwarts School. The safest place on earth is wherever he happens to be. These disciples, they're caught in a boat in the middle of a hurricane, but Jesus is dis disappointed that they've disturbed themselves with their fears. 
He wants them to learn to trust him, to face life's storms with great confidence, knowing that the safest place on earth is where he happens to be. I wonder, do we believe that? Only when he's begun to address the faith crisis does Jesus come to the weather crisis. Matthew tells us that he rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm, staggering. He not only sleeps through a hurricane, he gets up out of his bed and he puts the hurricane to bed. Last week we saw Jesus demonstrating his power over sickness as he healed a leper, a paralyzed servant, a feverish mother-in-law, and many others. This week, we see Jesus demonstrating his power over nature as he calms the storm. Now, I'm no expert on storms, but I read some stuff this week. They're caused by fluctuations in air pressure. As hot air rises suddenly, as cooler air sweeps down to take its place, that's what causes the drama. It's the heat of the sun that governs the rate at which the air rises. Whenever you're at sea, the speed of the wind and the pull of the the moon, that's what governs the, the size of the waves. That means that if you want to calm a storm suddenly, you've got to rein in the power of the sun and of the moon and of the wind and of the waves. That's how you calm a storm. How could you possibly do that? Who could possibly do that? And who could do it simply by speaking a word of their voice? The very idea is ridiculous. Unless it was the same person who had created it all. The sun, the moon, the wind and the waves who'd created it all with words of his voice. What kind of man is this? This is none other than God come among us. The creator is in the boat and he's using his power now to save his friends. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to see that the safest place on earth is wherever he happens to be. So far in our new series in Matthew's Gospel, last week and this, we've been confronted with Jesus' power to heal the sick and now to save his friends. In the previous series, we'd we'd seen about his power in preaching. You'll, You'll remember that, our series last year in the Sermon on the Mount. People had never heard him preach anyone preach like this. So he he has power to preach. He has power over sickness. He has power over nature. People, People loved Jesus for all of these reasons. They were drawn to him like moths to a flame. Look at verse 18. On one occasion, he just had to escape them. That's why he's in the boat. That's why this incident with the storm has occurred. For the remainder of our time this morning, we're going we're gonna to notice what happened either side of the incident in the storm. Let's finish the boat ride first and then circle back to where it all began. Verse 28, we discover that Jesus and his disciples made it safely to the other side. 
I don't know whether Matthew intends some irony here, but, but you've just come through a storm to get some peace, to get away from the crowd. And as soon as you've set foot in shore, two demon-possessed guys approach you. I'd be like, oh, really? Really, Father? I was just looking for a bit of peace and quiet. Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. People wonder about the stories of demon possession and of Jesus casting out demons in the Gospels. And I suppose I just want to ask you the question, how seriously do you take the presence of real evil in the world? How, how open are you to the possibility that a person could be possessed by the presence of real evil? In this passage, we discover that Jesus took it seriously enough. Here we have the essence of evil in these demons confronted by the essence of goodness in Jesus Christ. These demons know what's going on here. I, I don't know if you picked that up. They're, they're, they're on it. They know what's happening. They recognize Jesus immediately. They call him the Son of God. They also know that he's more powerful than they are. And so they ask him, what do you want from us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? They knew that at the end they'll come under the judgment of God. They knew that that time had not yet come. They're wondering what Jesus is going to do with them right now. And actually, they, they already are one step ahead. They have a fair idea of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to drive them out. He's going to set these two miserable souls free. But what the demons fear most of all, it seems, is to be made homeless. If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And Matthew tells us about the pigs over there. When the healing comes, it's extremely dramatic. We've been talking about the power that there is in Jesus' voice. This time it's only one word, go. And he demonstrates the same power over the demons that he's demonstrated over the sea. The demons leave the two men and enters the pigs. The, the demons, remember, they, they'd made these men violent. Wherever they go, they, they bring violence with them. Well, well that's what happens. The pigs experience their presence in the same way that the men had. The pigs take this violent turn and come to a violent end. As I say, it's, a, it's an extremely dramatic scene. The account in Matthew's gospel doesn't really stick with the devastation. Instead, he, he takes us to the village, tells us about their reaction. The pig herds, they'd rushed straight to town. They'd told the whole story, how, how the pigs had rushed into the sea, how the demon-possessed men had been healed. And Matthew tells us, verse 24, that the whole town went out to meet Jesus. Of course they did. They're on their way to thank him. I'm picturing an older man approaching Jesus. See those two men. 
the taller one. He's my son. He's been tortured for years. And you have come and set him free. Thank you. I'm imagining a, a younger woman approaching Jesus. See the shorter one? He's my husband. He was such a beautiful man when I first met him and when we married. And then the change came over him. And he hasn't been right since. He hasn't had a moment's peace since. And you healed him. Thank you. We could never thank you enough. And of course, that isn't what happened at all, is it? Matthew tells us, verse 34, when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Matthew doesn't tell us why, and maybe you're wondering why you're reading this story about a great thing that Jesus has done. We've seen the crowds follow him wherever he goes. Why did these town folk push him out of town? Well, it's the pigs, isn't it? Must be. They didn't like what happened with the pigs. Maybe you didn't like it either. Seems like a, an animal welfare issue in this story. That's not their concern. That's not what's on their mind. They're thinking economics. A large herd of pigs in a community like this would probably have been a large part of the, the village's economy. Losing the herd would have hit the townspeople in the pocket. So the healing of these two members of their community has come at a price, and it's a price that they're not willing to pay. Yes, Jesus, come. By all means, come and, and heal our people. But if it's going to cost us anything, we don't want to know. We've counted up the cost, and it's not worth it. Folks, a passage like this raises difficult questions for any community in relation to its money and its property. Are we a community that values money and property more than people? Do we value seeing people's lives restored more than we value our money and resources? Will we subtly push Jesus out if, he if we discover that he's given us more troubled people to love and less property to hold? There's a financial cost for any community that is serious about following Jesus Christ. We're going to finish this morning by circling back to the other side of the lake where our story began if verses 27 to 34 challenge us as a community, then verses 18 to 22 challenge us more as individuals. Again, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be ironic, but, but there's Jesus, one foot on the boat, trying to get away from the crowds when a, a guy comes out of the crowd and says, teacher, I'll follow you. No, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get away. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. There's something wonderful about it. He, this guy wants to be with Jesus. He says, wherever you go. 
He wants to be with Jesus. We know that Jesus wants disciples. In chapter 4, we saw him calling Peter and Andrew, James and John, saying, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So despite the bad timing of this gentleman's arrival, it's a very promising scenario here in the lakeside. But Jesus doesn't seem enthusiastic. Not completely. There's no welcome aboard, big fella. Take your, take your seat there in the middle of the boat. Jesus hesitates. Why is that? Well, this guy is already a teacher of the law, so he's part of the prevailing Jewish religious structures. Maybe he expects life with Rabbi Jesus to be just as it is with any other rabbi in the system. Jesus knows that it won't be. It could be that Jesus is wary of him applying to be a disciple. What the teacher of the law is doing here is totally normal by the standards. In this culture, a student would choose their teacher, they'd approach them, they'd apply to them to be their disciple. But it's not how Jesus worked, if you remember. Jesus went and called people to follow him. Jesus chose his own disciples. The initiative was always with him. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples plainly, after he's known them for years, you did not choose me. I chose you. Folks, this is so important in the life of discipleship. If we imagine that we have chosen to follow Jesus Christ then it's possible that just as quickly we'd choose to unfollow Jesus to use the language of social media. Everything's different when we know that we have been chosen. It changes entirely how we view ourselves. We see that the initiative lies with Jesus. We see that it's a huge privilege for us to have been called by him. We see along with all disciples who've gone before that he will never let us down. I have chosen you. You did not choose me, says Jesus. I chose you. So instead of welcoming this volunteer with open arms, Jesus simply tells him that life as a disciple will be no walk in the park. It's beautiful poetry but it hits hard. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. No postcode, no possessions, no pillow. Now, I've, I've talked to younger people about this and I've had to try and explain to them what's really going on. If you read this story, it looks like Jesus is saying, right? Go home, put up the for sale sign. If you're following me, you're not allowed to have a home. It's not, it's not what he's saying. How do I know that? Because it's not how Jesus himself lived. Even in uh, Matthew's gospel, back in chapter 4, we're told that Jesus lives in Capernaum. He made it his home, his base for the, the duration of his Galilean ministry. At this point, Jesus is simply making the point that life with him is not the settled life. 
Do you know how we make our homes and settling down into the, the, the vision for our lives? Jesus says, set that aside, follow me. I have a bigger vision for you for your life. Again, this is important for us to grasp. Whenever we do look at Jesus' life in its entirety, we, we discover that he did without a lot of things that we take entirely for granted. I've already said he did live in Capernaum, but he spent a lot of his time relying on the hospitality of friends. He never married. He never reached middle age. He seems not to have carried money of his own at a lot of points in time. He shared a common purse with his disciples. All of this suggests that he had, he had little of the things that we think are important in life. And yet, Jesus Christ talked about his life and his invitation as life to the full. Jesus' life was empty of a lot of the things that we fill our lives with, and yet he considered it to be life to the full. The best things in life, a rich relationship with the Father and with others, are not dependent on our material or personal circumstances. Matthew doesn't tell us how this teacher of the law finally responded to Jesus' teaching. He tells us instead, verse 21, about another disciple who said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus' answer there seems even more abrupt, doesn't it? Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Like the teacher of the law, this man was acute, was, was acting entirely within his culture. Whenever he asked to be allowed to, to bury his father, he, he wasn't asking for anything inappropriate. He was asking for the most appropriate thing of all, and that is to be a good son, to care for his father, to do what the law required to, to look after his aging parents. Not to bury his father would be to break Old Testament scripture, the commands of the, of the Torah. So in light of this, Jesus' command here seems strange. The commentators give all sorts of different explanations, but in the end, they agree that Jesus' call to discipleship is absolute. Jesus is deliberately using these shock tactics to impress on his disciples that following him is more important than any other responsibility they might have. Nothing can come in the way of their allegiance to him. Not their hobbies, not their jobs, not their friends, not their families. Jesus' call to discipleship is radical and it's urgent. We mustn't let anything put us off. Let's bring our time in Matthew 8 here to a close. Many of us here this morning want to follow Jesus. I, I know that. I can sense it. And sometimes you tell me. In this passage, Jesus responds to our desire to follow him. It's as though he says, great. You want to follow me? Well, well let's look at the small print together. Don't have your heart set on a comfortable life. I can't promise you that. 
be ready to set aside old priorities. I'll be your only priority from now on. Learn to value people more than money. This is the wild and dangerous life that I call you to. This is the place where I call you to trust me. But remember, I am with you in the storm. I've been through a storm much more furious than any you'll ever experience in a boat on a lake. I've descended into the depths of hell for you. Trust me. The safest place on earth is where I happen to be. Jesus wants us to follow him. He wants us to be aware of the cost. He wants us to count the cost. And he wants us to see that he is worth it. Just now we're going to...